Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, July the 4th, Independence Day 2023 in the United States, where I'm talking to you from on the West Coast from San Francisco. And of course, on July 4, we have to do a show about a great American president. We could have, we've done many in the past. We did one on Thomas Jefferson with David Fleming, who believes that Jefferson was uh, what he calls an asshole. We could, of course, do one on Lincoln and the tragic failure of Reconstruction. We did that with David, Flem uh, David Reynolds, who's one of Lincoln's great biographers. We could have done something on FDR. We did something with Jonathan Darman, who um, wrote about uh, FDR's uh, transformation uh, from uh, polio victim to president. Or we could have rethought the whole thing and imagined doing something in on July 4th on a, a leader like Crazy Horse. Um, Mark Lee Gardner, who came on the show recently, suggested that he is the greatest American and he's the kind of fellow we should be talking about on July 4th. Uh, so maybe Jefferson, maybe Lincoln, maybe FDR, maybe Crazy Horse, all of them legitimate. I don't suppose many of you, though, would have put forward a man called James Garfield, who was the 20th president of the United States. Um, he uh, spent nine terms in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, his presidency, apparently, according to the White House, was impactful, um, but was cut short after 200 days when he was assassinated. So this was the 200-day presidency, a 19th century president who most of us know nothing about. And appropriately enough, on July 4th, a Tuesday, uh, in the tradition of the publishing industry, we have a new book out. President Garfield, From Radical to Unifier, by my guest, uh, C.W. Goodyear, who uh, we will call Charlie. Congratulations, Charlie, on the new book. Oh, thanks, Andrew. It's uh, anything it would take to get me on your show, so I really appreciate it. So you mean you only wrote the book to get on my show? Yes, that was the, that was the motivation from the very well, that's beginning. How, that's <laughs> what everyone should know. If you write a book on uh, President Garfield, guaranteed you're on the show. So... In all seriousness, Charlie, why the book? I have to admit, I, I'm no great maven on American history, especially 19th century history. I knew almost nothing about Garfield. What's interesting about him? Yeah, it's uh, you're not the only one, by the way, who hasn't really uh, given much thought to President Garfield uh, recently, and that's for good reason. Uh, I was drawn to James Garfield because I was actually interested in finding a period of American history that was maybe not entirely comparable to our own, but that had a lot of similar societal themes of the time to our own modern day, uh, a period of our history where the economic, the social, the political conditions were all divisive. But somebody was trying to defy the divisive spirit of those times to keep the great machine of American government functioning. So I was drawn to reconstruction in the Gilded Age, which is the post-Civil War and then the post-post-Civil War. And in my research throughout that time, I kept on finding the same figure in the background of most major events on the national level. But 
uh, he was also somebody who everybody had vaguely nice things to say about at the time, regardless of their own personal politics. And that person was James Garfield. And then the closer I got to that person in their life, the, the, the closer I studied Garfield as an individual, the more I realized that that life deserved to be told in a new way, in a new style. Uh, he was the last president to be born in a log cabin, the second one to be assassinated. Uh, he was, for a time, the youngest brigadier general in the Union Army. He had been raised by a single mother on the Ohio frontier. Uh, second youngest congressman in the country in 1863. And then he uh, had this incredible congressional career right up until his presidency in 1881. And along the way, he was also a Supreme Court lawyer. Uh, he was multilingual. He wrote an original proof of the Pythagorean theorem. He was just this incredible statesman of a forgotten time and his style of politics and combined with the breadth of his mind, he just, it just made him a fascinating figure. And uh, I, I, I consider myself fortunate to have uh, come across him as a subject. Uh, you describe him as being in the background of everything you looked at uh, in this period. Was he a kind of zealot? He was there, he was everywhere, but no one really noticed him? Uh, that's a good question. He was noticed, uh, and the reason for which he attracted notice differed over that time. In 1863, when he joined Congress, this was halfway through the Civil War, he was one of the firebrands of that Congress. He was, you, you mentioned Lincoln's legacy with Reconstruction beforehand as one of your prior guests. Uh, Garfield was one of the radical Republicans. So he was even, he was more of a, he was in Lincoln's party, but he and Garfield and Garfield's style of Republican were in favor of not just immediate abolition, but full racial equality in America and the, uh, what, what they called radical reconstruction. So a thorough burn it to ashes and build it up from the ground version of reconstructing the South in the North's image in the United States. And in that context, he did attract a lot of attention. But then as Reconstruction continued, and it was a decades-long process followed by the Gilded Age, Garfield mellowed out and he moved into more what I'd call technocratic styles of legislation. He became the fiscal wunderkind of the House in that period of American history. He became uh, uh, very involved in census design. He realized, as he put it, that the Republican Party needed to move away from what, it, what he called destructive habits and towards constructive ones in order to win the peace politically, rather than uh, just stick with the talent it had developed during the war. So he, he alone, I think, was able to really ride the political currents very well in that post-war era. And then when he, really, when he really came to the forefront of national attention, it was when he was this dark horse presidential candidate in 1880. So somebody who wasn't even running for the presidency who got picked, uh, it, it seems on the surface against his will to be the Republican candidates nominee for president in 1880. And he was picked because he was the last person, every single faction of the Republican party of that time still remotely liked. Uh, I should say though, that he was not, that was not necessarily seen as a entirely a positive thing. His ability to slip between the seams of every faction of that time and to be this diplomatic, friendly moderate. That was seen by all kinds of Republican as a sign of weakness. They yeah, also, as you write, uh, uh, many of his critics described him as lacking moral backbone for better or yep. worse. The president, the 20th century president, 
that most comes to mind, um, although he lasted a lot longer as president and he wasn't assassinated, is Truman. It, it, are there mm. comparisons? A uh, very ordinary man didn't choose really to be president. Uh, a, a rags, certainly not rags to riches because he was never rich, mm. but uh, a, a, a had a sort of a, a zealot-like quality from the middle of America, from uh, from Missouri, from Kansas. Uh, what 20th, what other 20th century presidents might we compare him with? I mean, obviously there are going to be some comparisons with Joe Biden and his idea of unity. We did a show last year with Stephen Marsh, one of the people who believes America's on the brink of a civil war. Mm. And we talked about whether Biden's reasonableness, perhaps his lack of a moral backbone might help America uh, on the brink. Yeah, no, that's war. a good question. Are, are there comparisons, say Biden, Truman, anyone else? So Truman and Truman is an interesting one. And I think the one I, I'm no I'm no Truman expert. I've read McCullough's book, but I wouldn't consider myself, you know, a Truman scholar. But I think you are right that the two men were kind of thrown into the presidency almost unexpectedly. Garfield sensed it coming. A lot of people were approaching him in private and saying, you are the only person who could possibly unify our party. And he was resisting those appeals in private. Truman, on the other hand, was picked uh, to allay concerns about FDR, who was by then very long in the tooth and um, and who was, you know, from this coastal, who, who was a New Yorker through and through. They needed back in those days a good Midwestern boy and they picked Truman. Um, the the other person that gets compared to Garfield a lot, and this is this is some somebody, this is a comparison somebody else came up with for me. They said Gerald Ford mm. as somebody who was willing to try to at personal expense, build bridges in sometimes a very agonizing way. Yeah, I mean, Ford sort of took took a symbolic bullet, maybe not a literal one. Like, uh, he didn't take, yeah, he took a symbolic one, didn't take a literal one. He, let's he, go back to the firebrand, yeah. Garfield, because I'm interested in that. We've done many, many shows, uh, Charlie, as you can imagine, on abolition and the issue of race in America. One with J.D. Dickey on the rise of abolition in Andrew Jackson's America. Jackson, of course, uh, has a very checkered history when it comes mm. to race and slavery. Uh, many shows on how Ameri how African-Americans, enslaved African-Americans, thought of America and even embraced its symbols of freedom. Um, of course, uh, the, the, the crisis after the end of slavery and above all else, the movement the, the, the abolitionist movement, one with Linda Hirschman on Douglas and some of her white allies. Where did Garfield fit into this? Did he know Frederick Douglas? Were they close? Uh, they weren't necessarily close, but Garfield thought of them as being friendly. But Douglas didn't think very highly of Garfield, Gar thought of Garfield as being, again, this very fluid person who never really could be counted on to stand for any issue at any time. But it's interesting you mentioned the radical Garfield, the early version of because when he was, the reason he joined the Union Army in the Civil War was in great part because he wanted to be, he was an abolitionist, borderline borderline militant, really, by that time. Where was he born, just just to remind us? He was born in the Western Reserve of Ohio, which was uh, oxymoronically in the northeastern part of the state. And he was, and it happened to be a, a kind of a bastion of progressive politics in American history at that time. It was called the Gibraltar of abolitionism. Because it was this tiny little corner of, of the country 
that was geographically isolated and then ideologically very, very different from Ohio today. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think there are pockets. The political geography of America has definitely gone through some evolution. But the, the Western Reserve had, by one measure, uh, more stops on the Underground Railroad within it, a higher concentration of them than any other part of the country. Uh, so Garfield came out of this area. He was working class. He had kind of pulled himself up by his bootstraps, but he was incredibly progressive. And uh, at the beginning of the Civil War, he saw an opportunity to both enact the changes that he wanted to see in America and then also ride the uh, Civil War to national prominence. He was already a pretty big time local politician, but he believed that by serving valiantly in the Union Army, he could build a national political career. And he was entirely right. He did that exactly right. But he was very he had great forethought. He, he could he had he knew exactly how the war was going to go from its very, very beginning. This is something he wrote at the very beginning of the war. The South is subjugated. The war will soon assume the shape of slavery versus freedom. The world will so understand it. And that was actually a pretty, I, I'm not going to say rare, but it was not the view that the Union was assuming about how the Civil War would play out at its very beginning. The Union was arguing, or at least it perceived, that the Civil War would be over in very short amount of time. Uh, people thought that the South would be crushed within months, if not sooner. And they thought that it was being fought, and the Union argued it was being fought, not for slavery, but for sovereignty, to keep the Union intact. Uh, Garfield was one of the few people who at the beginning saw that the war would soon become defined by slavery versus freedom. And that would be a very long and bloody conflict. So he saw that occur. And then halfway through the war, he was being restricted from his abolitionist tendencies by other officers in the Union command chain while campaigning in the South. And he wrote that that this, the settlement of the Civil War is the smaller of the two conflicts before the nation. The bigger challenge is going to become is going to come from after it, winning the peace. And that inspired his jump to Congress halfway through the war and inspired the politics he tried to fight then. And he but he learned pretty quickly, as the rest of the country did, that the that that uh, enacting those principles was politically, socially, economically and even legally impossible very hard to find. And so he moderated his politics as Reconstruction went on. Well, he did. And he, I mean, I, I, it's always easy to make these arguments in retrospect, um, mm -hmm. Charlie. But I mean, in retrospect, perhaps it would have been wiser to have had a much harsher line on, on the South. Uh, Reconstruction would have been more constructive and, and, and less problematic in the long run. Yeah. I like that uh, I'm line. actually this week. I'm going uh, tomorrow. I'm flying to the to uh, to Gettysburg. I'm I'm going to the Braver Angels Convention. This sort of third party in America trying to bring people together. Hmm. Did he see action in the war itself? He saw a tremendous amount of action. He uh, he 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 led. So the way he initially distinguished himself was he led this campaign in Eastern Kentucky against a group of rebels there. And that ended up winning his promotion to Brigadier General, which made him at that time the youngest Brigadier General in the Union Army. He then was also present at the Battle of Shiloh and the Battle of Chickamauga later on, which were far bloodier and far more intense in defining conflicts. And uh, so he did see action and he was, by all accounts, quite an intrepid commander. Uh, he was also, though, he was also a politician. He was a politician in a general's clothing. 
And he had entered the war knowing that his service would be useful to his future political career. But when he was in the higher ranks, when he had become a brigadier general and a major general, he kept very close relations with senior leaders in the Lincoln administration. Yeah, I mean, what was his relationship like with Lincoln himself? Did he know him? Uh, it, yes, they knew each other. Uh, Garfield has this account of them meeting when he had been elected to Congress and he wasn't actually sure if he wanted to take the seat versus continuing in the army. He'd already made up his mind he wanted to go to Congress, but he needed his ego flattered a little bit in order to do it. And Lincoln told him, told Garfield, leave the army. We need military minded Republicans like you in the house. You can do far more service in the house versus in the field. And, but Garfield really, uh, didn't like Lincoln's politics at when they were both alive at the same time, because Lincoln was a moderate. Lincoln was somebody who was a pragmatist. Lincoln was somebody who was managing a very delicate Northern coalition and who couldn't wage the war on radical principles. Uh, in what, what little experience Lincoln had trying to manage reconstruction, he took a very conciliatory policy towards getting Southern states back in the union. Garfield was, on the radical side, which was in favor of disenfranchising former rebels permanently, rather than taking their word for it as Lincoln was. But then, as you say, I mean, it's coming back to this winning the peace. Uh, he changed. He he went from being a hardliner or a radical to someone who was much more conciliatory. So, so sure later did. in his political career, he became more and more like Lincoln, I guess, as he experienced power, he recognized its limitations. Yes, there's actually another great biography of, of Garfield called The Last Lincoln Republican, which is by Todd Arrington. And that describes the politics that Garfield later on came to uh, assume. But yes, he eventually, for a variety of reasons, and I think this is actually much more in tune with his real personality, he came to believe in both politically and personally in the, in the necessity of open-minded moderate politics. He, he wrote uh, towards his later congressional career, uh, to be an extreme man is doubtless comfortable. It is painful to see so many sides to a subject. And with that attitude, it, you can see how that just aligns with the need for him to be a, a pragmatic politician on all these issues, including not just fixing the South, but all these other things that were propping up in the Union towards the end of the uh, 19th century in, in terms of uh, like cleaning up government, for example, instituting civil service reform, uh, trying to manage the, the national currency, which was not an issue we think of very much today, but back then was uh, a defining issue. He was uh, a rare, open-minded pragmatist, and that ended up, ironically, being what made him quite an effective uh, unifier. Of the did party he, though, did he have um, sort of a, a, a panoramic historical take? Did he understand that winning the peace meant making sure that uh, the victory of the North and the victory of the anti-slavery movement needed to be formalized. I mean, what was his attitude towards the South and reconstruction yeah. or unreconstruction? So on a personal level, if it had been up to his personal ideologies, he would have had a thorough reconstruction pursued. Uh, where you would continue to have uh, strong federal enforcement of civil rights on the local level within these states. But he also started to tolerate the arguments of, uh, of those disagreeing with him that to empower the federal government in such a way in peacetime would set a very dangerous precedent and it risked the, the integrity of the union. 
So he was caught between these dueling ideological instincts within him as well. But more importantly, I'd argue, he saw politically the danger of continuing to define the Republican Party of that time with worrying about the South. He continued to see uh, electoral losses happening uh, every time that the Republican Party again was forced to confront some Southern uprising or uh, some failure on the local level in the South to uh, enforce civil rights effectively. And he wrote, and this is during the Johnson impeachment, because that's another thing that he was present for, the Andrew Johnson impeachment. He wrote that he was trying to be a radical and not a fool. And that kind of shows you the balance he was trying to strike at that period in his life. But he totally understood, by the way, that his legacy and the legacy of the union on that issue was imperfect by the end of his life. And he wrote as president-elect reflecting on the continued injustices and the continued imperfections in our republic. He wrote that uh, time is the healer of everything with wisdom and justice at work. So despite being this very tortured pragmatist, he still saw in the greater arc of the country, he was still very optimistic in what he called the destiny of the republic. And that's a phrase lifted from his inaugural address. If you read his inaugural address, it reads as a remarkably stirring uh, 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 speech filled with these uh, very forward-looking perspectives on issues. He, he calls out continued injustices in the South. He talks of the need for universal public education in America as being, this, as being the way of ensuring that our institutions are stable. He also talks about the need for civil service reform, cleaning up government, which ended up being an issue that contributed to it. It is important, though, Charlie, to remind our viewers and listeners that the America of of um, of uh, President Garfield, the 20 months he was in power, um, was a very a profoundly different place, an agricultural country. The yeah. presidency, the institutions of government were incredibly weak. So whilst I, I take, you know, obviously you want to, you want to make your argument that we we in 2023 can learn something from Garfield. Um, we can also learn that the America of 2023 is a is a foreign place from the America of the 1880s. Yeah, no, it absolutely would be. And he witnessed that transformation. So that's why you want to be hesitant about saying, and this is how we should lead today, because his legacy on that is not entirely positive. And the country was very different in those times, too. But the the themes of the day and the divisions that it was going through. they You can see in the experiences of Garfield's political career, you can see both uh, precedent for what we're enduring in certain ways and also an explanation for them, a, a way in which a lot of the, uh, the structural deficiencies of our system were preserved by political necessity in that time. And those, those structural deficiencies are what? They're mostly on Reconstruction or also on the the institutions of government. I think Reconstruction is one example. I think the institutions of government is actually another because the defining issue of Garfield's presidency, at least, was this topic of civil service reform. Because back in those days, back in uh, that period of American history, it lacked formalized rules and regulations for the federal bureaucracy. There were technically, or I should say practically, no such thing as professional civil servants in America at those times. You had post office workers, you had taxmen, you had sheriffs, but they were political appointees rather than true civil servants. So they owed their appointment to their congressman and whoever was in power. And the result was a very cronyized system of federal government. And the corruption that this festered across our system 
had become endemic. And it was caught between these dueling forces of that time where you had certain partisans who said having a corrupt system where you could give public jobs to political loyalists was very important into keeping certain parties in power and to preserving the stability of our government. And then you had civil service reformists who wanted rules and regulations around how American bureaucrats did their job and what activities they were allowed to participate in. And that, I think, is actually a, 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 a very interesting comparison. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you were interviewed uh, on CNN, um, and uh, they describe uh, Garfield, uh, the assassination, as cutting short the life of a public servant. His notion of public service, as you suggest, was at the time quite radical, quite revolutionary. And of course, it also uh, was before the rise of these party machines, which came to corrupt the notion of public service in the late 19th, early 20, 20th century, which were bound up in, uh, uh, in the Gilded Age. They were. Uh, there were machines in his time, actually. And his death ended up being the beginning of the reform process, where rules were finally instituted on the, the public jobs that these machines use as currency in their corrupt system. And uh, the defining issue of Garfield's presidency was how to manage this. He believed in, in, in theory in civil service reform in instituting tenure limits on people who held federal jobs, on rules and regulations about uh, their sources of revenue, how much of the public piggy bank they could draw from. But he also saw the need for Republicans to keep certain machines intact in order to continue winning elections against Democrats, because that's the thing about political bosses of those times. Uh, when you have a boss system, a machine system, you have, to a certain extent, an incentive to keep the status quo stable. And so there's actually this really interesting movement that's ha happening academically in this time of polarization today. A lot of political scientists are looking back on the machines of Garfield's time and afterward, and they're asking themselves what positive uh, externalities machines had on preventing partisanship, because bosses and machine operators are inherently stable stability oriented beings they don't like they don't like the extremes tipping the balances of our political scales so that's an interesting counter argument that i think garfield's life really well illustrates he was as you suggested a, a prescient man he understood uh the nature the complexity the paradoxes of american history but ultimately he became a martyr he he couldn't uh he couldn't imagine his own assassination, or, or, or could he? Did he? Was he aware of the, <laughs> the levels of hatred and violence? I mean, of course, Lincoln was assassinated. Did he, he understand that taking this job was a, a risk? He, yeah, not he, just politically, he, he but his own life. He, uh, well, interesting. You should ask. Politically, he did see it as a massive risk. He saw the presidency as being kind of a place to go if you for the. It's the death of productivity. He had, by 1880, been through four presidential administrations. They had all ended poorly. And Garfield had uh, been in them as a believer at the beginning and then disappointed at the end. Presidencies don't end well for their occupants. They never do. There, there's never been an American president who's ended their administration on a high note. It's always been one tainted by disappointment, I think. So even Garfield, FDR, do you think? Oh, uh, yeah, even FDR. I think so. I don't think those are happy men at the end of their lives. And they have been men so far. But Garfield wrote, uh, when people started approaching him as a candidate, as a possible candidate, he wrote, I hope it is not true 
uh, there is too much possible work in me to set so near an end to it all. So he didn't see it as something that would be a useful place for him to be. Uh, he also saw, had seen so many of his friends become very interested in uh, the presidency and have that be the end of their career. He called that the presidential fever, where so many peers and mentors of his had become interested in pursuing the presidency, and that ends up actually being the end of their political usefulness. So he vowed that that would not infect him. But inevitably, he was partially interested in the way the convention went and the way he was thrown into the mix. He ended up riding the current and he ended up winning the election. But you mentioned his personal fear of the presidency. Before he ended up inherit as president-elect, he had a nightmare of, that involved in part the death of his vice president, uh, Chester A. Arthur. And as a biographer, you can't help but put your subject on the couch and ask yourself, what was he still like? Did he sense the danger that was ahead of him personally? So he turned out to be quite right to be apprehensive of the presidency. All of those fears he had were totally well placed. And he knew that it would be a difficult job to manage that coalition. And it ended up being the, the end of him. Finally, uh, he, he's remembered as, quote unquote, the... Uh, parenthetical president uh somebody wrote interestingly uh if it never existed uh, aaron sorkin would have to invent him given his ordinary background and remarkable life what should we remember about this parenthetical uh president uh, charlie on uh yeah. independence day july 4th 2023 is he is he helpful? I mean, you obviously believe you've written this biography, which is out appropriately enough today. What is the, the single takeaway you think uh, from his life in terms of the America of 2023? I think he personally, politically, is a wonderful reflection of all the complexities and strengths of our political system. He is a microcosm as an individual. He, he's a microcosm of both the idealism and the practicality, the the triumph and the tragedy of our American Republic and how it's structured. It's also a very good look, I think, his life, of what it looks like when a pathologically reasonable person is in power in Washington. Because he was elected as, as, as part of an attempt to bridge partisan divides, at least within the Republican Party in the country in 1880. And the way he governed and the way he tried to lead the country, it's a good... Uh, it's a good example, I think, of it, it, it's an example in both a positive and a negative way of the ideal a lot of Americans reach for today. You hear Americans in private today and they discuss that a, a yearning for pragmatism in Washington. Well, pragmatism is a is a very tricky thing. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. And sometimes being the most reasonable person in the room ends up perpetuating a lot of the evils of that time, and it ends up deferring the settlement of a lot of our most difficult troubles to the next generation. And I think Garfield encapsulates all the positives and negatives of that approach to politics.